Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and uh, and uh, today a particularly cantankerous colleague, Ed Condon. And I'd ask That's how you unfair. are, but I already know. That's unfair. You've, you've trapped me into, I'm sure, give, gifting you a cold open through selective use of the record button. Um, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't. I know that you are feeling very conspiratorial, conspiracy-minded today and maybe quite paranoid today, but I don't even know what it is that you're suggesting I have done or not done now. Let the listeners decide. <laughs> Let the listeners decide what they haven't even... We're just getting started. We just started the podcast. And so I say, hey, everybody, it's J.D., Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, and then I throw the ball to you. The, the podcast, the whole game of podcasts is just throw the ball back and forth, back and forth. So I throw the ball to you. How are you doing, Ed? Uh, well, I'm a little grumpy. Today, I can JD. tell. What's going on, man? I I had dental work done this morning, which doesn't put anyone in a sunny frame of mind. No, that's um, why I neglect my teeth entirely. Yeah, that those, those chickens are going to come up. Uh, I suspect they will, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't, I, the only reason I put up with this nonsense with the regularity and expense that i do is because it's better than the alternative um although i do i am increasingly of the opinion that teeth in the human mouth are design flaw yeah yeah I like the lord should have come up with a better idea i mean this is not this is not workable right I, it's not helpful yeah i mean the other thing is okay so do you ever think about this like i i'm not i'm not second guessing himself and his his plans because they're, they're all they're all of them good but if we're just if we're going to talk about human creation and physiology for a moment, I mean, let's be honest. There are some things that could have been improved upon. There are some changes. This I sounds would make like tweaks. the beginning. You know what this sounds like right now? This sounds like the beginning of like a sort of like '90s kind of comedy bit where the guy's standing in front of a brick wall. You know, he probably has on a bright blue blazer, and he's like, "Well, you know, if if the if the Lord had asked me for some, the good Lord had asked me for some input on making the human condition, here's what I'd say." Make my fanny less big, <laughs> or whatever other stupid nineties. Uh, I'd like to apologize to all of our UK <laughs> listeners and remind them that that means something completely different in the United States. I didn't and know that. Also, something that I was looking yeah. for something. I was looking for something innocuous. Actually, I was trying to find something. Yeah, you can't say that word if we're going to have a transatlantic audience, JD. Well, okay. Also, you can't claim to have one of those. So, um, anyway, yeah. Moving swiftly on. No, I was just going to say all I would like is first of all, I don't think this sounds like a Seinfeld bit. It, I, you brought it up. I'm just saying. <laughs> I said, "How are you?" I said, you, "How are you?" And I said, "I had I was at the dentist this morning, and I and if I yep. you know if if the Lord was taking feedback, I would say more robust teeth. You know what could work? I've thought about this before. Um, effectively, keratin-based teeth, like keratin teeth, where the teeth can wear down because they're only keratin, but they they're always growing. You know what I mean? I think there might be some. Well, no, this is the difference that. between humans and animals: is we have evolved to have closed root. This is why baby teeth fall out and then right, regenerate, right. and why with animals you pull up the tooth that will grow back. It so the reason that we have a closed root around the thing so it eventually stop the teeth from regenerating is because we simply don't use our teeth enough to grind them down the necessary amount to make up for continuous. But growth. I do. You'd have to like gnaw on bones. Well, I don't do that, but I grind my teeth. I do that too, yep. apparently. I, although that only started in the last year. I can't think why. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Um, how do you know that about teeth and closed root and everything? It's just basic human biology. I mean, so every I animal. This in secondary school. <laughs> okay. I, I also went to um, secondary school, as it were, but I don't remember learning this. Every animal's teeth, every animal has regenerative teeth except for human beings. 
No, humans have regenerative teeth as well. That's why baby teeth. But fall only once. You only get it once. Well, because part of the 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 roots of the tooth. You think of a tooth. You've got the crown. That's the you know the part above the gum line, and then the roots, the sort of prongy bits that reach underneath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in sort of the normal natural state, this is also true, I believe, of most um, monkeys and lower primates. Those those roots remain open, and there's a blood vessel and you know a core to the tooth that is constantly growing and producing more tooth and it comes out. And because humans don't use their teeth enough or on a robust enough way to grind them down to compensate for continuous growth, the, the, the roots of the tooth close, come together and basically cut off the blood supply to stop it continuing to grow. I see. So like a, a gerbil, for example, Yes. It has to chew on a wooden block in order for its teeth not to become too. Right. And there are some swine, some boars and things that have tusks. And if they don't grind them down, they'll actually grow at such an angle that the, the tusks will curve over and grow into their own skulls. And are you suggesting that's down. true of many animals? Like, is that true of my dog? Uh, your dog, I'm pretty sure, has open root teeth. I, the, pull one out and see if it grows back. I don't... I'm, I didn't study veterinary science. <laughs> I just... I just know that why people's teeth don't grow back. That's just basic biology. I have often thought, like, if it were... Boy, the people who don't like the banter are not going to like the banter this week. Um, But I have often thought that if it were affordable, I would just get a mouthful of implants and be done. Uh, You wouldn't. Why? I'm familiar with people. People in my life who are close to me have had to have dental implants. And let me tell you, you don't want any part of that. Because of the process? Yeah, it is an extremely painful process. And also the problem is when you're pulling teeth out. I mean, this is the thing is you just think, well, why the hell can't we just go the whole hog here? Just rip it all out. Give everyone dentures. And then like, you know, it's a, that's what you want. I don't this want is dentures because I don't the, want to. I mean, that seems weird. I just want the. No, anyway. this is what I would like is more of I, I would like more of my sort of maxiofacial apparatus to be removable, cleanable and reinstallable. All right. Teeth. Like sinuses, if you could detach your sinuses and just give them a good clean out every day, like how I could get over this my chronic addiction audio. to nasal spray. This that was really, people are going to love all of this. this is awful. No, they're not. No, this and is awful. Well, what no, are we talking about? This is terrible. About? Okay, so you have, we went to the dentist this morning. You didn't like going to the dentist this morning. You weren't happy about going to the dentist this morning. So now you're feeling conspiracy-minded. But probably about 35 times today, you've suggested to me various people who you believe might be conspiring against you. Not just against me. Sometimes just against, you know. Decency and order. Sometimes decency and order, the body of the faithful, you know, things like that. And sometimes against us. You know, sometimes you've thought these are various conspiracies against the pillar. Um, well, yes. But, but am I I'm, wrong? I don't know. But I think we're going to get you out of that mood. And the way we're going to do it, Ed, is that there are a lot of things that I want to talk about today. But I am going to let you start with something that I think is going to make you excited. Because there was – we're not going to talk about it for very long. But there was a small development in the Vatican finance trial this week. And I think – you could tell our listeners a little bit about it. We actually, a bishop texted us today and said, I hope you'll talk about the small development in the Vatican finance trial. And I thought to myself, why? For the love of God, why? Now that we're doing this dental thing, I can understand why he would want us to talk about anything else. But Because um, it's Ed, like pulling teeth. Tell us what's happening. All right. Um, fine. Uh, so what happened this week was the court of review, which is a sort of secondary appellate court in Rome – struck down an arrest warrant, effectively, that the, that had been issued by the original court for Gen Luigi Torzi, the broker, of course, at the center of the London property deal for the Vatican Secretary of State and sort of the ur-suspect in the whole scandal, which has now been going for three years, 
four years, give or take, and led to this trial. So there's there are some things that are interesting about the Gianluigi Torzi's your Italian legal difficulties. In fact, he has several Italian legal difficulties and cases ongoing in different jurisdictions, but we'll leave that to one side. The one that we're talking about. So in in April last year, an arrest warrant was issued for Torzi by an Italian court on charges of basically tax evasion fraud. The Italians, not the Holy See, but the Italians not the Holy, are charging Torzi with yes. this stuff, tax evasion fraud. They wanted to arrest him. And and basically the um, basically the charges are this that Torzi as anyone who is still listening to this podcast at this point already knows clearly um, is that Torzi is alleged to have extorted up to sort of fifteen million out of the Vatican at the tail end of the London property deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he basically held the building control of the building to ransom through his holding company in Luxembourg, Goot SA, which he restructured the share deal to, depending on who you listen to, Torzi or the Vatican, he restructured the deal behind their back to hose them and hold the building hostage at the death. And according to Torzi, they agreed to the share restructuring and agreed to him holding the building hostage and hosing them at the death. Take your pick. Anyway, um, but the Italian charges are basically that this 15-odd million that he got by allegedly extorting the Vatican, um, he then dealt with and dispersed in particular ways through Italian banks and in Italian jurisdictions and committed fraud and tax evasion in so doing. So it's roughly premised on his alleged crimes in Vatican City, although they are, properly speaking, crimes in Italian jurisdiction breaking Italian laws, being prosecuted by Italian prosecutors in this case. So anyway, this can... this. Um, indictment was handed down in April last year. An arrest warrant was issued. Torzi was living in London, where he had fled, having defaulted on bond release at Vatican City after his arrest there in June of 2020. Um, and so they went to go get him in London. And extradition process has been underway, you know, since then. He's he's tried to get it dismissed. Uh, by London judges on a couple of occasions and been knocked back. He was under house arrest wearing an ankle tag and basically waiting for them to pop him in the post back to Rome. Um, That's now, that arrest warrant has been quashed. That extradition process will be stopped. But that doesn't mean the charges are dropped. No charges against Torzi have been dropped. He is still indicted. The Italians are still charging him with tax evasion or whatever. They just can't arrest him. That's correct. They've just, the court has said there's no reason to arrest him on site and basically have pretrial detention of the man. That but he still has a court hearing. He still has a, yeah, he still has a trial date. He still has a court hearing. He still has to show up in court. I doubt very much he will. Um, but he's still facing all of the charges he was facing. Uh-huh. The The Italian court just said there's no reason to extra, force the extradition and arrest this guy on site as soon as he sets foot back on Italian soil. Um, so that's interesting. But what's more interesting, or I think will be illuminating for some of Torzi's defenders, and believe it or not, he does have them, um, is that his contention through his lawyers has been so far during the Vatican trial, in which he is very much um, under indictment and charged with embezzlement, money laundering, fraud, extortion, all sorts of other things, and conspiracy with several former Secretary of State officials, as he's been contending that he hasn't been coming to the pretrial hearings because he can't get to the Vatican because there's this arrest warrant out for him in Italy, and so he'd never make it to the Vatican. He'd land in Fulicino. Now he doesn't have an excuse not to come because he was like, I can't go through. It's like, I can't go through this middle territory here because if I do, I'm going to get arrested, so I'm sorry I can't come. Yeah. 
doors now wide open for him to attend his Vatican trial in person and defend his honor. Do you think that? Uh, and he is he one of the few guys who hasn't been coming to the trial? Because I know that uh, you know. So they've had a few hearings. Catch. I know that Cardinal Bachu has been coming to the trial. Uh, Cardinal Bachu has been the most consistent attendee in person. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't come to the last hearing because he said it was beneath his dignity. Oh, right. He, he said it was beneath his dignity because he was accused of potentially having an affair with C.C. Maragno, which, I mean, you know. <laughs> no one accused him of that. That's uh, questions true. were asked of whether he was having an affair with C.C. Maragno, which, I mean. <laughs> questions were asked about why he was threatening to sue various Italian newspapers for their coverage of his alleged crimes. Um, but he hadn't threatened to sue an Italian sort of Saturday Night Lifestyle comedian who does regular impersonations of Cardinal Becciu and had been strongly implying in his comedy that there was a romantic attachment between him and Ms. Maragna. He basically said, well, if the Cardinal's going to sue everyone who's saying things that he says aren't true, why hasn't, why he, hasn't sued he sued these guys? Which I think is an innocent question in the course of several hours and days of And the Cardinal was so and, offended by the notion that he might be having an affair with Cece Maragna that... Um, He's boycotting his own trial. Yeah, okay. <laughs> There's a lot that Cardinal Becciu has said is beneath his dignity. Um, I mean, usually what's beneath his dignity, according to him, is answering questions, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, he has been the most uh, consistent attendee in person. Monsignor Carlino was there for the opening, I seem to recall, although he stopped attending when he was in that sort of bracket of charged people and charges that were uh, had the investigative phase reopened. Um, so he and guys like Raffaele Mincioni and others sort of were parceled out for a time while prosecutors reopened the investigative phase to give them a chance to feed into the process. Apparently only one of the six people took advantage of this opportunity and all those charges have now been refiled. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the chances that Gianluigi Torzi is now going to show up in Vatican City Court are zero. Uh, if for no other reason that he's presumably wanted for skipping bail. Oh, that's right. Because he made a when he, when he was arrested, when he was in sort of Vatican City jail, he made a pledge that he would pay his bail, which was like, I can't remember how much, but I'm sure you can. Three million. Three million. He made a pledge that he would pay it. Um, and then he, they let him out. It was kind of funny because they let him out. And... Uh, well, he signed a bunch of instructions right. for it to be financial for, instructions yeah. to various Swiss institutions to pony up the three million bond. But basically, what he did was it boiled down to he wrote Vatican a rubber check, right? Exactly, and they let him go, before and they, they tried, tried to, cash to cash it, and they yeah. said, "What are you talking about? There's no money here." Now, I have never been arrested, but I would presume that ordinarily, um, one's jailer sort of checks to make sure that the bail is uh, is good money before one is let out. I think I've seen the a cartoon where. Uh, um, like we've been watching these, um, they're called silly symphonies. These sort of like you know old timey cartoons uh, at, at my house, and I think there was one where sort of Mickey was in a jail, and the jailer kind of like bit the money. You know what I mean to make sure there was money. Yeah, so I would presume that that's a standard sort of uh, standard course of action. Um, but it, but for the Holy See or for the Vatican City State, the notion of detaining someone with a three million dollar bail obligation is so. New. I mean, usually it's kind of like a the the Vatican City State Jail is sort of like a a dry out tank for people who are drunk or hold on sort of pickpockets until they can get effectively a desk warrant. So probably they have never seen the cartoon where you're supposed to bite the money. Probably. I mean, I would point out that the former papal butler Paolo mm-hmm. last name escaping me from the Vati Leaks trial. Yeah, yeah. He he did do some time in the Vatican City slammer. Oh, I thought that he did his time probably. in. I thought he was sort of. 
uh, placed in an, in, an, in an Italian jail for the purpose, for that purpose. I think he was eventually, but um, initially uh, he was detained the, for a little while. Fair following enough. his arrest, he spent some weeks in there. Got he it. was, uh, and it's nice. I mean, you got to do time. Mm, sure, you get daily mass there. Yeah, sure, that's, that's right, absolutely. Uh, anyway, so yeah, the update on what happened this week with Gian Luigi Torti is basically there's now nothing stopping him from defending his honor in court, uh, as he's insisted all the way along that he would like to do. Okay, but well, my guess is he's going to stay in London. Um, although where he's going to stay, I don't know because, you know, last I heard his quote unquote home address was a house being rented at some astronomical figure. I'm, I may be misremembering this, but I think it's like a million and a half pounds a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, the house is being rented for him by a company, which, you know, I, I, let's put company in air quotes here because there are a lot of companies around Gianluigi towards the, um. Money seems to come in and out of them, but very little indication of where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, I will be interested to see for how long he can maintain the standard of living to which he has become accustomed in London without um, without any visible sources of income. Sure. We shall see. When's the next hearing? Uh, Vatican trial resumes uh, 18th of this and month. When, and Ed, when, 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 does the, when does the trial phase of the trial begin? Like, everything... Up to this point, I suppose all past is prologue, but everything up to this point has been preliminary, and I and I presume that the hearing on February eighteenth is pr uh, sort of another evidentiary hearing or motion hearing or status conference or something like that. When does the actual thing? When is it going? When do you think it's going to happen? When do I think it's going to happen? Um, okay, so Giuseppe Pignatone, who is the chief judge in this trial, has been growing visibly testy about all of this mm -hmm. the last couple of sessions really since november mm -hmm. um i think it would be fair to say he appears to be losing patience with the defense lawyers filing what at this point i think we would in canon law call merely dilatory motions mm -hmm. and objections yeah basically sort of tried to, try to stall stall motions stall motions yeah. um i think betchew's decision to no show the hearing if he just not turned up and sent his lawyers, I don't think anyone would have made much of it. Mm -hmm. But sending a snotty letter saying that the whole process was beneath his dignity, I don't think is going to strengthen his case or inspire sympathy among the judges. Uh, anyway, now the prosecutors have closed the sort of reopened investigative phase, refiled the charges against those other six guys. Incidentally, they only dropped one charge against one person, which is they dropped, I think it was a charge of embezzlement against Tommaso Di Ruzza, who was the former director of the IAF. AIF, the Vatican's financial watchdog, mm -hmm. um, they dropped the charge of embezzlement. He's still facing charges of abusive office and something else, uh, fraud, I think. Um, so it's, you know, that they basically refiled all the charges against everyone. Um, all of the, they only did that because these six defendants said, well, we weren't given a chance to be heard mm -hmm. during the investigation. This mm -hmm. is unfair mm -hmm. and a denial of our right of defense. And so the prosecutor said, fine, we'll reopen the investigative phase, come and be heard. And apparently, only one, and they didn't name the one, but I have it on reasonably plausible authority that this was Monsignor Carlino who turned up. And the rest of them, Raffaele Minziani, uh, all the rest of these characters just didn't show up. You know, I think at this point the judges are getting pretty fed up with this. Mm -hmm. So the charges are all back in. I'd say April 18th will be cleanup day, and the judge will probably give them one more round of this nonsense so i would say 
I'm going to be pessimistic and say, judge says I'm only going to do this one more time and we're going to get going, um, which takes us to March. Then he sets a date. Proper trial, full-blown evidentiary phase of trial starts by June. Okay. Well, I guess we will. I guess we will find out. Would you care to lay any sort of wager down on that? I mean, how confident are you that June will be the time? Uh, I'm fifty percent. Okay. Here's the wager that I would like to propose. Um, Bear in mind, we already have a wager going, which is you have said that the entire trial will be derailed this year, and no one will ever see a day in real court. Hmm. And I have said that is not. I said that. What's the bet? What was the bet? Our, our standard bet, which is just the smug satisfaction of knowing one of us was right. <laughs> but I'm going to lay down wrong. some more stakes because you happen to choose June, right? You happen to choose June as the time when you think – so you think that the trial, quad trial, will be will begin in June or will be underway before – you know, on or before June, effectively, in or before June? Substantive hearings taking place prior to June 30, yes. Okay. I'm going to bet the opposite way and say that I don't think that there will be any uh, substantive hearings taking place. By June 30th. And here's the bet that I'm going to propose, Ed. It so happens that you chose effectively the midpoint of the year. And this is something that we're discussing here on our podcast, which we produce together weekly. Um, uh, But, you know, we have different roles in our podcast. Um, uh, It is my job, by longstanding custom and no other reason, to be the host of the podcast. And that gives you a, a tremendous amount of freedom to play any number of roles that you would like to play during the course of the podcast because you don't have to feel responsible for sort of moving it along or not moving it along for thinking about the listener and how the listener is experiencing it. You just get to sort of do what you feel. And uh, and as you know, I often envy that and often sort of wonder how it came to pass that I am obligated to be the host of the show and you get to do whatever you want. So I can explain it to you if you'd like, but yes, carry on. <laughs> I see where this is going. So what I would propose, um, I'm not sure how that happened, but what I would propose is that um, if the trial is not underway by June 30th, um, you will have lost the bet, and the stakes of the bet will be that you will have to take over the hosting duties for the f- for the back half of this year. And I will okay, be set that's... free to be the sort of grumpy one if I, if I would like to be. Okay, that's what you get if I lose. What do I get if you lose? Uh... If I lose, I will continue to be the host of the show. So basically, the loser has to be the host of the show. So you are pushing absolutely nothing in the middle and declaring significant upside for yourself if you win. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I suppose that's right. I respectfully decline. <laughs> well, what would you like? All right. Uh, if I... You you have a gift for... for rhyme jd i think that's fair i i do i do have a you have a certain genius for limerick. i have a genius for limerick and it's really unfortunate you know that as genius has been doled out there are people who have sort of mechanical aptitude or great sort of kinesthetic yeah. kinesthetic intelligence and what i have is a genius for limerick it's real i'm not even i'm not my latin is not very good i just i have a gift for nothing but limerick and i would not have chosen that as the thing you find it very easy to to compose slightly sarcastic occasionally risque I do. Rhyming I, I do, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, earlier this week in, in one of the DMs, which we have, which they're all called The Pillar. Yeah, we have lots of text groups with one other, other person. It's one other person and, us. and then the, the name of the text group is The Pillar, yeah. And, and for us, we just have like five or 12 text groups called that. Yes. Yeah. In one of those groups, it was someone suggested a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek take on um, the immortal Disney song classic uh, Part of That World 
from Little Mermaid, you may recall. A b- part of your world, but yeah. Yeah, okay. So so my half of the bet is going to be if you lose, that is, if there is a single actual formal trial phase hearing prior to June 30 of this year, you have to compose a full version of part of your world only repurposed to describe the hearings and then you have to sing it on the podcast okay i have to tell me again i have to recompose part of your world to uh, to report the the goings-on of the evidentiary hearings which you claimed would not have happened and bet would not have happened by that point and then you have to sing it as a presentation i will i i so much do i want uh, to be able to swap hosting duties for a little while, that yes, I will make that bet. Excellent. Okay. Well, <laughs> listeners, you've got a lot to look forward to on June the 30th because I, the very next show after that, either Ed will be uh, hosting or I will be uh, doing that thing. Or it's entirely possible, and I think probably most likely, that we will have completely forgotten about all of this um, by then. Oh, we will not forget. Even if we don't forget, I suspect there will be some who, who remember. Yeah. Or even if we forget, What's I funny is you don't actually want this. That's what oh, I Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, 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 sir. No, every time I try and host, you spend the entire day trying to sabotage me and take over hosting again. <laughs> I don't like when we did the Christmas episode. You it did just great. burned you, did you great. up. People from... loved it. It was a really good job. People loved it. You did great, and I kind of oh, thought, I'm clear. I'm great at it. Yeah, I am, no, you I are am an amazing host. If I want to, be, mm-hmm. but I just don't want to. Be. Well, that makes. But the thing is, you don't want me to be either. I don't know about that. You I think, think you don't want to host, but the only thing you don't want more than to have to host the podcast yourself is to watch me do it. It drives you crazy, huh? It, when you see me hosting the podcast, you get that look in your eye like somebody's riding your bike. There are certain things that I think need to be done in certain ways. It's not that I'm controlling it, and I want you to do it. It's just that I want you to do it correctly, you know, and there are certain things uh-huh. that need to be done in certain ways. I understand what you're saying. And and should you lose the bet, I'll, I'm going to put together kind of a sheet of some of the sort of like um, best practices and essential decisions <laughs> that have to be made in order for this to go to go well. But I will put together that sheet for you. And I think that that will help a great deal. We'll see. Okay, great. All right. Well, having placed that bet, um, there is something. There are a few other things that we want to talk about, although, believe it or not, we're already sort of deep into the show. There are a few other things that we want to talk about today. And uh, one of them is um, you, you and I were just kind of having an interesting discussion before, and we decided we'd sort of save it for the pod, as it were. Um, we, we published today just a kind of update on this sort of interesting lawsuit that was filed in, in 2020. So you might remember back to 2020, if you can look that far back in your memory, you, you might remember the sort of flash in the pan story that kind of popped up and then probably didn't see much more after it. But there was a, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB. And, um, the reason for the lawsuit was that there was this, um, plaintiff who was representing a class as class action lawsuits go, um, there was a plaintiff who claimed basically, hey, um, you know the Peter Spence collection? Um, well, uh, we have always thought um, here in the pews that the Peter Spence collection was for the Pope's charities around the world, for sort of papal charity. And um, the reason we thought that is because the bulletin announcements and in-person announcements that we have heard and uh, materials that we have seen about the um, – uh, about the uh, Peter Spence collection have suggested that indeed the money that we give for Peter Spence is sort of like a purse of money which the Holy Father can use for sort of um, uh, aid projects around the globe 
in parts of the world which are sorely in need of that kind of support. Um, and so um, people have given generously, and the United States, in fact, is the sort of leading contributor to the Peter Spence collection. Um, is it? Yes. Um, You're sure? Yes. But what? Yes. Um, but what was? Cause Sorry, I, I, I'm curious. I, I, I was. I've never heard. That I before. just looked it up today. Yes. Um, really? Yes. Where's Germany in this? I think it was number two. Okay. Because yeah. I, it was the last I heard was that um, Germany was the biggest. So to hear that the U.S. is the biggest. We're number one. Peter Spence's. Wow. I'm. Based upon something Go. that I'm pretty sure I read today. Uh, at any rate, um, wow, you know, this, this guy said, you know, now we know um, that the Peter Spence collection has been used for sort of the administrative needs of the Roman Curia. That um, when there are budget deficits in the, in the, in the budget of the, of the Holy See um, or the Roman Curia, when, they're, when uh, you know, the money goes to that. And we also know that now when Peter Spence takes in money, that money is often put effectively into pots of, pots of money which are used for investments and maybe the return is used for um, – the distribution of the return is used for um, uh, uh, charitable purposes, but even that doesn't seem entirely clear. And um, the lawsuit cited some reporting that suggested that in recent years, only about 10 percent of the money that has come into the Holy See for Peter Spence has been used to, to, in distribution to sort of charitable or aid projects. And so the guy said, hey, um, if the USCCB kept telling us this was for charitable and aid projects, and indeed – um, it was not. Well, the USCCB would have known that or had a responsibility to know that. And um, that kind of false advertising essentially constitutes a fraud. So guy files a lawsuit. Okay. And there was – it was in January of 2020 and there was like – there were big news stories about it for like about, as I say, about five minutes. And then you didn't hear anything more about it. And I didn't hear anything more about it either. And I, I kind of thought, well, I guess, you know, probably didn't go anywhere. It didn't sound like the kind of lawsuit that I thought was probably going to go very far at all. Um but I remembered the name of the attorney who filed the suit. It was Mark Stanley. I remember that the lawyer's name was Mark Stanley. So the other day I'm reading the newspaper and, uh, and I discovered that Mark Stanley, um, this very same lawyer, has become the United States ambassador to Argentina. In fact, was um, appointed and confirmed in December by the Senate and uh, presented his credentials to the president of Argentina just like two or three weeks ago. Uh, and it led me to wonder, oh, well, I wonder what happened to the lawsuit. Maybe the lawsuit had ended, da, da, da. So I go into the sort of federal court database that we have, and I start looking, and um, I saw that the lawsuit has effectively been on hiatus for a year. A year ago, in more than a year ago, actually, in January 2021, the USCCB asked a federal court to dismiss the lawsuit. They said, um, we don't do the collection of the Peter's Pence collection uh, yes, we put out these advertisements, but we're not sort of responsible for, we don't collect the money, we don't oversee the expenditure of the money, we don't do anything. Um, and for that reason, and then for some sort of jurisdictional reasons that it said had to do with the free exercise of religion, um, the, a court can't really tell uh, a religious organization how to spend its money, and so you should dismiss uh, the lawsuit. And the attorney for the plaintiff argued, no, indeed, you shouldn't dismiss the lawsuit because that's – it's not the free – advertising for a collection is not the same as the free exercise of religion, that there are some constitutional – you know, that there are some presidential protections there, et cetera. So the judge hears the hearing and then the judge is promoted. Um, she doesn't make a decision in the case and then she's promoted. She's in the D.C. District Court and she gets promoted to the D.C. Federal Court of Appeals. And so the case just sits and sits and sits and sits. And uh, recently, a new judge was appointed to the case, um, and that judge also has not made a decision about the USCCB's motion to dismiss the case. So the case is just sort of sitting and sitting and sitting. And while the case is sitting and sitting and sitting, the lead attorney for the case, 
off to Argentina, appointed as the United States ambassador to Argentina. So everybody touching this case seems to get a nicer get a job. nicer job, right? Exactly. So one of the other lawyers takes takes it over. I call the other lawyer. I say, "What's going on?" He tells me, "This is what we think is going on. We think that we're uh, we're adding some more lawyers because our main guy went off to Argentina, but we're going to try and have a status conference, and we think that this new judge. He said it's a little bit long for a case to sit without a ruling on a dismissal hearing. You know, a whole year. He said, you, you know, you might wait a little while for that, but you wouldn't think you'd wait a whole year, but." You know, this judge got promoted and they had to wait for a new judge and everything. So he said, that is what it is. Okay. But we think now there's a new judge. We've got some lawyers. We're going to try to have a status conference and move this forward. And we think we can get a ruling. And we think we're going to win this lawsuit. And um, you and I, I called the USCCB and I said, well, what do you guys think about that? And they did not get back to me, um, which sometimes happens. Sometimes the USCCB gets back. Sometimes they don't. But you and I were kind of talking about this today. And you had the opinion, which I was kind of surprised by. Uh, you said that... Um, in your mind, people would have known, could have known, or should have known all along that the sort of Peter's Pence collection is used for the administrative affairs of the Holy See. And I said, in fact, I had no idea about that until we started doing reporting on it and others did, because sort of the advertising and promotion of the campaign has indeed always sort of been the Pope's charities. And so until I started looking into it as a journalist, I had no idea of anything else. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I can understand that, I suppose. Take, taking um, taking things in their own, admitting to my own biases of um, information and fascination. Uh, if you get all of your information and your entire impression of Peter Spence is formed by envelope templates produced by the USCCB or whatever it is, then I, I can understand how that you might arrive at that impression. But I mean, the the Vatican website it, they've. After sort of things, after Peter Spence became the subject of much fascination and scrutiny in 2019, they completely redid the Peter Spence website. Um, so I'm not sure what it says now, but certainly in 2019, what it said was that the you know the collection is an offering from. Okay, I'll just quote from it verbatim. This is what it said in 2019: Peter Spence is an offering that each member of the faithful decides to give to the Pope so that he can provide for the needs of the entire church especially in those places where the church experiences greater difficulties. Also, the Pope's charitable works extend to the whole of humanity at whose service the structures of the church exist, and for this reason, Peter Spence also contributes to the support of the Apostolic See and the the activities of the Holy See. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was right there on the website for forever. Okay, so that's kind of interesting, because your point is, well, it was right there on the website of the Holy See that this would be used for activities of the Holy See. Um, right. In a certain way, I wonder if that might support the guy's claim, because... So, uh, yeah, there's there's two things to distinguish here. We're, one, what is Peter's Pence, fundamentally, and what has it always been? Mm -hmm. Which is, it has been a voluntary offering of the faithful for the work and priorities of the Pope. Full stop. That's the function of Peter's Pence. Is it's always been, since its inception, a global collection where the faithful make a free offering to support the ministry of the Pope. Now, the sort of leaning into it as... You know, the the Pope's preferred charities, I admit, it, you know, gets the lion's share of the publicity. And this is how it's been sort of presented and spun at the parish level, certainly in this country, for a very long, long time. Um, but, but that ain't what it is in a technical sense. And I mean, here's the other thing. In this country, it was well enough known decades ago that Peter's Pence was going to fund the budget shortfall of the Holy See. Um, it was well enough known that 
Father Tom Reese, a former editor of America Magazine and someone with whom I have uh, often had very friendly conversations on the subject of Vatican finances. Um, Father Tom Reese wrote in a 1992 book, so this is 30 years ago, that this was going on, that a large proportion of Peter's Pence was going to meet the budget deficit at the Holy See. Um, in 1988, Cardinal Kroll of Philadelphia started the Papal Foundation, which, by its own um, board members and former officers' testimony at the time, the purpose of this was to help bail the Vatican out, to say that Peter's Pence is being spent in greater and greater measure on meeting administrative and operational costs for the Curia, and they didn't want to see the Pope's charitable giving lose out on that. So the whole Papal Foundation started as a way of addressing exactly this problem, and that was in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah, but I think the the guy's point, and maybe that's maybe these things kind of evidence it, and certainly I don't know, but I think the guy's point is, most people who would give to Peter's Pence would give to it because they go to Mass on Sunday, they read a bulletin announcement that says, for the Pope's charities, for the Pope's charities, um, you know, around the world. Maybe it would even say for the Pope's charities and other needs of the Holy Father or something like that. But the examples given would always be sort of charities in, in, the, in, in the developing world. Um, That's and true. And if indeed this information is sort of widely known or has been widely reported or has been evidenced on the Vatican website, it, it, would that in fact suggest all the more concretely that perhaps the USCCB had been not forthcoming in the way that it had developed its own sort of promotion for the campaign. Look, looking at the um, looking at the language employed by the USCCB as cited in this lawsuit, it is difficult to look at that and say this is a, a at least in tone and spirit, accurate representation of where the bulk of this Yeah, is here's a bulletin announcement, a sample bulletin announcement that's listed in the lawsuit. Today is the Peter's Pence Collection, a worldwide collection that supports the charitable works of Pope Francis. Funds from this collection help victims of war, oppression, and natural disasters. Take this opportunity to join with Pope Francis and be a witness of charity to our suffering brothers and sisters. Please be generous today. For more information, visit then the USCCB sort of Peter's Pence website. If that's where you got your information about the thing and then you heard, oh, actually, you know, 10% of the money is distributed to charities and the rest are sort of spent on the operational needs of the Holy See— um, and in fact, that's sort of widely known and was report, you know, that has been written about in, in, in books and uh, is on the website of the Holy See. You might indeed think like, well, I'm not sure that's an accurate representation of the thing. Uh, yeah, and I think that's fair. But then again, um, and to the USCCB's point in defense, the USCCB doesn't collect this money. To the best of my understanding, Peter's Pence is undertaken as a collection at the diocesan level and sent from the diocesan. I would think I, I asked the USCCB if I write a check at my parish. Um, to Peter's Pence, how does the money go from sort of the collection basket in my parish to a London apartment building, uh, you know, to Rome? Um, oh, that I can't no, explain I know to that, you. But like, how does the money... It never does. The interesting part it is, doesn't. how does it get from... People have reported that Peter's Pence money know, went know, to fund the purchase. I know, that, and that's wrong. I know, I know. It's which a representation of what happened. What was happened is that the Peter's Pence money was used to secure to secure don't. loan. Yes, okay, Off fine. books, and don't tease me with this, okay, J.D. Fine. You're not allowed to just dangle that topic and say you can't talk about it. If I write a check for Peter's Pence in my parish, as I do... How does the money go from my parish to a bank account of the Holy See? Like, sort of, what is the process? Is the USCCB a pass-through? And the USCCB has not explained that to me. But, I mean, it is true that, that I, in as much as I can tell, it seems to me that the money is sort of aggregated at the diocesan level and then wire transferred to the, to, to the Holy See. And you were saying that would be a defense of the Holy See, uh, of the USCCB in some way. Well, I mean, if they're not collecting the money, the money isn't touching any USCCB bank account. It's my understanding, if you're going to accuse someone of sort of fraudulent advertising, mm-hmm. 
part of that presumably is there has to be a, an implied benefit to the person doing the misleading. Oh, so there's no I, benefit here. So if I um, if I just start putting out sort of independently advertisements for Coca Cola, or if I just start sending to um, to vendors of Coca-Cola, like my own advertisements. And I'm like, Oh, here's a sample ad that you could run. And they run them. It's like sort of caveat emptor. Even if my, even if my ads are not, are, are arguably Look, not I'm, I'm not saying again, I said the USCCB's template copy, as you just right. read, is not a very good, accurate representation of where this money is going. Right. I, I would agree with that. On the other hand, there's no obvious benefit to the USCCB for deliberate misrepresentation. I think there is a problem uh, that this probably points to, which is that if you said, we're holding a national collection or an international collection one day a year to support the ministry of the Holy Father, and the vast majority of this is going to go to supporting the operations of the Vatican, I think quite a lot of people would say, well, I'm not putting in for that, Um, which is a shame. I, I treat Peter's Pence, I mean, it is voluntary, no one's obliged, but I certainly contribute to it every year, and I would encourage everyone so to do. Uh, you know, the the governments of various nation states in this world see fit to tax me every year for the inefficient and grasping operations that they undertake allegedly in my name and for my benefit. <laughs> Why shouldn't I feel the same kind of obligation to support the governing structure of Mother Church, which actually does do sure, things yeah. mm-hmm. for my benefit, yeah. like ensure sacramental provision and things like that. Well, and so I, I, I can't recall. I, I think that the bishop can impose a, a tax in canon law, not only upon juridic persons, but I think the bishop could tax us yes. if he wanted to. Isn't that right? The bishop can indeed impose a... A moderate tax. A taxa. But yes, I can't remember if that's only on juridic persons. Uh, no, I think... Hang on. Well, let's, let's do, do it. it. To, to the, the law. law. Oh, yeah. Never mind. After the diocesan bishop has heard the... 1263. After the diocesan bishop has heard the finance council and the presbyteral council, he has the right to impose a moderate tax for the needs of the diocese upon public juridic persons subject to his governance. So the bishop can tax corporate church corporations like parishes or religious orders or Catholic hospitals or seminaries. Keep reading. He is permitted oh, only to impose an extraordinary and moderate here. exaction upon other physical and juridic person in cases of grave necessity and under the same conditions. So in a case of grave necessity, the diocesan bishop could, in having heard the Presbyteral Council and the Finance Council, could indeed tax us. Well, yeah, but it would have to be an income tax. It can't be a flat rate. Uh, why is it? Oh, proportionate to their income. Um, I would... Uh, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. And yeah, if my bishop imposed a tax upon me, in a formal way, I would unquestionably feel obliged to pay it. Yes, I would. I would feel obliged to pay. I mean, don't get me wrong. I pay Peter's Pence in the same spirit in which I pay my income taxes. Um, you feel like you have to do it till you do it. Do you? Send, I feel like I have to do, do it. So I do, and I complain bitterly in the secret places of now my heart. Now that we work about for that. ourselves, do you send Peter's Pence four quarterly prepayments in anticipation of what your income will be, as we do for the IRS? Uh, no, no, no. I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, just, just wanted to know. <laughs> that, that, it hadn't occurred to me it. to do that. Uh, no, I just do it on the day I, I stick a wad of cash in there. Um, okay. Mostly because I don't trust ecclesiastical institutions with my banking details. Yeah. Uh, 
which is a whole other thing. But um, I do complain about, in the same way that I complain about how my tax dollars and tax pounds are spent by various governments, I complain about how what I consider to be the necessary rendering unto the church of what is due and proper for to support our governing function. Because for, for example, the biggest line item on the Vatican's budget is the dicastery for communications, mm-hmm. which is, I would say, showing a very questionable value. For Frequently me. inefficient. Often mendacious. <laughs> certainly tendentious. I'm not sure that I go that far, but I, certainly I would have concerns. Oh, they don't like doctor photos of things and get caught and then guys get fired very publicly for doctoring photos and, and then, then get their jobs, rehired and then get into quiet the same jobs back. Yes, indeed. Those things. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So I would call that if not menda- mendacious and certainly tendentious. But anyway, um, we digress. I, again, I would like the Vatican operating bureaucracy and govern, um, governing functions to to allocate their funds a little more responsibly um, and perhaps, you know, reward good governance where they see it and, you know, maybe spend a little less money on the bits of the thing that seem to work least well. But again, that's I respect the the authoritative judgment of the of the Holy Father and the governance of the of the Holy See. And, it you know, in the end, it's his choice how he wants to spend the money and it doesn't touch my my perceived moral obligation to support it, J.D. That's totally fair. I think there is a question, though, about um, the circumstances under which persons are making such a decision, even though I appreciate sort of your disposition on it. There, nevertheless, there's a legitimate question about the circumstances under which people are making a decision to um, to make a donation, especially because the law protects the intention of the donor, right? Canon law protects the intention yes. of the donor. So if indeed— So this is an interesting is, question. If indeed donors have given transaction—have given uh, uh, um, gifts to uh, Peter's Pence under the understanding that— um, they're doing so for a particular intention, the support of charities in the developing world and these kinds of things. And that's not the case. Um, you know, there's a, there's not potentially, there, there's potentially a civil problem, which is why this is undergoing a lawsuit, but there's potentially a canonical problem too. Well, is there? And I, I, this, this gets into, I, I understand that the argument gets a bit circular here. Mm-hmm. That yes, you can have people donating to Peter's Pence with the, with the intention of the donor being, well, this is for the Pope's preferred charities and the Pope's preferred charitable work. But then again, the very nature of Peter's Pence is it's a voluntary offering of the faithful to support the ministry and priorities of the Holy Father. Like that's what Peter's Pence is. So by doing that— But again, that all depends upon how it's presented. You're saying it's a voluntary offering to support the ministries of the Holy Father. Fine, but— But I'm saying isn't that— that, that's a legal definition of what Peter's Pence is, and surely that is represented somewhere in the U.S. I, I just literature. read to you the things which are communicated to the people who are asked to give money to it. Those are sample bulletin announcements and things like that. Right. But the, those be... are the conditions under which ordinary people make their gift to Peter's Pence. If you're saying, well, the statutes of Peter's Pence say otherwise, that is, that's precisely the point that the person is trying to make in the lawsuit is whatever the statutes say, that's not sufficiently represented to those from whom funds are solicited. I think this is going to come down to one of those, you know, when you when you hear commercials on the radio for that at the end of P- the Peter's Pence announcement, you know, exactly. I was going to say when there's sort of you know snake oil oh, man, medicine I would love salesman, that at the pulpit, just like uh, we're having a second collection. No, but like on, Peter's the, Pence, on the thing where you fill thing. in, but I'd love it at the pulpit, which supports the thing and the and and you know they, there is something to which probably says not in the sample bulletin announcements that were given, but I think no, but that like on I the back of the envelope, you put your donation like, in. 
um, you know, other needs of the Pope or something like that. But if the pitch is this is for charities of the developing world and only 10% goes to it, yeah. And it would be fun, super no, not, funny. This is a pitch for charities and only 10%, but I would be very surprised if somewhere in the actual donation material, the envelope you put your cash in, the form you fill out with your bank details, a credit card, I think you or can just else. write a check, buddy. Well, if you just write a check, unless you put in the memo line, Peter's this is Pence. only for... Right, but Peter's Pence, what's the definition of Peter's Pence? It's how, not the commercial. The point is, the the point legal is not the question of what it is. It's how was it represented to you? Well, you know, I'm sure a lot of people had... I cannot believe you know, your moral flexibility on this. I really can't. I'm not being morally uh, flexible. I I'm, don't know how else to I'm saying you. Look, I'm saying never trust a commercial, no matter who's putting it out. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and with that said, please become a... Do you see the problem that you put yourself in here? No, this is the thing. Is I, Our stuff is, first of all, <laughs> no one is obliged. It is... Right. You, you are, by contributing to the pillar, basically we're taking an honesty box. Mm-hmm. But also, what you get for your money is said very, very clearly right there on the donation page. Right. Us we're doing very, this. We're very upfront about it. Yes, us doing this. Um, I, As to what it's actually going to come down to, um, I would not be surprised if the lawsuit was dismissed because the court doesn't want to get involved in something that could be seen as a sort of religious, you know, singularly religious sort of spat. Well, the thing is, think of the precedent. You would have every single person who was aggrieved at, right. you know, their local pastors, you know, said he was going to do X with the collection plate on Sunday and he ended up buying himself, you know, a nicer house or something. Mm-hmm. Like This would open the floodgates to a huge number of laws. I, do, I don't see... And because it would open the floodgates to those, I would not be surprised if the, if the, if the case is dismissed. And if it's not dismissed... You know, I, it's hard for me to see that it's sort of winnable, whatever the whatever I sort of think about its merits. It's hard for me to think that it's winnable, um, although maybe I've talked myself into it. But what I was originally thinking is I do not think that the USCCB has records of the final disposition of the money or even the collection of the money because the USCCB is not, in as much as I can tell, a pass-through of the money. I'm not sure that's immediately sort of relevant well, to the question of how Well, and the other thing is the USCCB, isn't, uh, the USCCB isn't raising the money. Right, but there's, they are – See, this is the tricky part is that the USCCB does not have a hierarchical relationship with the dioceses. Dioceses are not branch offices of the USCCB. Thanks the most you can accuse them of is giving yet, really, really bad advice. And yet they're providing these sort of resources. Yeah, maybe that's so is the most you can accuse them of is sort of providing really bad advice. Except they are sort of – they do become – they do have this sort of agency relationship where the Holy See communicates to them, okay, it's Peter's Pence time and tell all the dioceses. And so they tell all the dioceses sort of on behalf of the Holy See. So are they a sort of agent of the Holy See in, in the collection? Well, of if they're thing? an agent of the Holy See, then you can't touch them. Because well, you can't touch the Holy See, but I don't know if you can touch a sort of uh, uh, an agent of the Holy See here in the United States. I don't know. I – You don't know You either. can't claim it's an agent of the Holy See. What's that? You can't claim it's – we can go to the law if you want, but nowhere in – the juridic. I'm not saying canonically. I'm saying if the Holy See effectively. Com- but that's what the that's the definition of the bishops' conference. But Ed, that's not how a, you understand that that it's not how a judge, a court judge, makes a decision. Is what the canon law says. It's what's happening functionally. But if the Holy See deputizes the USCCB to do this on its behalf in the United States, well, the court has to look at that not in accord with sort of what's the juridic reality of the USCCB and the Code of Canon Law, but what is this fun- relationship functionally? Because the USCCB does lots of things that are outside of its sort of mandate from the notion of being a juridic person. But the court can't examine that because then they're involving themselves in the in the internal governance of a religion. Well, that's what the USCCB is saying. And this other fellow is saying, well, that's sort of true if you were talking about 
um, confirmation age or something like that. But in this case, you're talking about the solicitation of funds, and the court does have an interest in exercising oversight with regard to the solicitation of funds. So I don't that's know. I don't know how it's going to play that's out. That's never going to fly. The church has got the church don't expect, successfully deployed surprised. the internal yeah. government's argument to argue that, for the hiring say, and firing of teachers. I suspect that the case, no that the lawsuit will probably be dismissed. But it raises really interesting questions. In as much as I know, I think the USCCB has changed um, the the way that they market the Peters Pence. Um, I, I think. I mean, it would be funny if they hadn't. But I think that the USCCB, USCCB has changed the way that they they market the Peters Pence. Do you know much about how they do the thing? The new th- the new version. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. But, I mean, again, you, th- this is going to go nowhere. And the reason it's going to go nowhere is, again, the money never went through or touched the USCCB, as near as I understand it. In which case, you can't hold them liable for what? They haven't got any money. Make restitution. For what? They didn't benefit from it. Yeah, it would be especially difficult for them to be ordered to make restitution when they haven't actually collected money, right? I, I mean, I, there's no way I think that this gets to a judgment this in the court. This is a vexatious lawsuit. It's very, very silly, although it does highlight It a, highlights a, import- a real thing. It, right? highlights it highlights a real, a real thing. thing. Which is, I think, that people... Yeah. Um, who have given to Peter's Pence have given to Peter's Pence. I, I can say for myself that sort of until we started learning about Peter's Pence because of our coverage back in what do actually you mean we chemo savvy back in 2018. Um, until we started learning about Peter's Pence because of our coverage, I can say that I didn't um, know those things. Uh, and so if I'm if there's a reasonable man standard and I'm the reasonable man, I guess there's something to that. I don't I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think it's that, that's probably fair. All righty. Well. Was this was this a good salve for your for your toothache? Yeah, I yeah. What do you think I've about been, what's been happening with the Olympics so far? I mean, is that nuts or what? Uh, I what, what have I missed? Actually, I know that nothing. The, the court... I threw that out there. I wanted to see if you would take the bait on my is that nuts or not with nothing. I mean, I had I had nothing. I was just saying that. Well, so I did the, the Olympics I think start tomorrow. Start... I think. Yeah, they start Friday, the day this podcast will presumably come out. Um, oh, actually, but... no. Uh, uh, oh. Sh- no, um, the opening the ceremony, opening ceremony I know is, being is tomorrow, but boycott. they're already playing hockey. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And today, Thursday, you the U.S. women um, beat uh, Finland five to two. Excellent. What I will say is this: I am aware that an unknown number for representing an unknown number of countries are planning on boycotting the opening ceremony, just no showing it. Oh, really? Why is that? Yeah. Why? Well, because China is a oh monster. yeah, oh, just as a demonstration against China. Okay. Yeah, you know, against the ongoing genocide taking right. place I, in the country. I understand. While this I is feel going like on. you're yelling at me for asking the question. Sorry, no, I'm just yelling at the Olympics for happening uh, in China. Okay. Um, the, the so the interesting thing is this, although the reason that we don't know the number of athletes and the number of countries, that, and we'll just have to sort of guess from the crowds that don't show up. The thing is, they can't say anything because, of course, they could be arrested if they make any statements in country. Oh, sure. Or yeah. post anything on social media. Yeah. Like, and how weird would that be if it's like, I'm sorry, but the Danish luge team isn't coming home this year because right. they sassed the CCP. Yeah. But it will be obvious, obvious. It will be obviously obvious. Can we, but can we just be clear? How ludicrous is it? Yeah. That we are holding the Olympics in a country where the athletes are not going to, there are athletes who are not going to turn up to the opening ceremony of the games and are not free to even say why they aren't going to show up for fear of being arrested. Well, you, Does that not strike anyone else as outrageous? Absolutely outrageous and insane. And what you could end up having if you had a big enough boycott is effectively an opening ceremony nullius because you already had, you know, no tickets were sold. The mm-hmm. They're not open to the public. So it would be, it'll be effectively an empty arena. With um with some uh, selected selected Chinese citizens at certain ev- uh, events, but um you could end up with a sort of empty stands and empty 
ceremonies. So the 3,000 performers or whatever who are be at the front of the opening ceremonies will effectively be performing for themselves or by themselves or something, which actually well, – I mean, who knows? I, the, the, I, this is China. The, they are a communist government. Mm-hmm. Forced crowds at big rallies is what they do. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's who right. knows? Who knows? Yeah. They could just CGI the whole thing. Yeah, you know, that could be. Um, yeah, I have talk- comments about that. But uh, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. I am headed uh, from the production of this podcast to Mobile, Alabama, where I'm going to the wedding of a cousin this weekend. So from Alabama, see you later, y'all. Thank you.